We don't want the response of the first responder to be the second trauma of the day for the victim. If we get there and don't properly execute the skills we allegedly are there to do, we in many cases could create a less than positive outcome. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again. Rope rescue technology is changing fast, and it's important to keep up with those changes. When there are new, safer techniques and tools, and you're not using them, that's a waste. And it's always a little more dangerous to either you or the patient. My guest today will tell us about a couple of those changes, and he'll also talk about a situation that's common in the field but not practiced enough. Bob Dumel has been in the fire service since 1976 when he served in the U.S. Air Force as a crash rescue specialist. He spent 30 years with the Rochester, New York Fire Department, retiring as a captain and having served as a department special operations officer. He is the planning section chief of New York Task Force 2 and serves on the board of the State Urban Search and Rescue Alliance. And Bob Dumel joins us now. Thanks for being on Code 3 today, Bob. Well, thanks for inviting me today, Scott. Glad to be here. So let's get right to it. Why did the attendant's attachment to a Stokes basket change from a pick-off strap to a set of fours? Well, it was kind of a transition due to the advancements in uh, technology available to us in the rope rescue field uh, over the last approximately 10 years, give or take some. We've kind of gone through a renaissance period with the evolution of new technologies that are available to us, many of which... Uh, provide a much higher level of safety for the operators. So um, it kind of came over period of time. Some people are still using the old technologies, and the vast majority have adopted and adapted to uh, the newer options that are out there. Does it require extensive retraining to make that transition? Yeah, I'd say retraining is a good way to put it, or training onto the new options that are available for you. Uh, as you mentioned, the most primitive and initial setup we used to use was a pickoff strap, which worked well. It was a safe setup, but it gave us very limited adjustability for the attendant on the basket. And it also had an extremely short distance of reach, which posed a lot of problems in the event that you had to maneuver the basket because of uh, obstructions or maneuver to assist your victim who is packaged within the Stokes basket. Uh, when we moved on to the Yosemite rigs, they were very uh, advantageous and given us these options to move around um, while still limited and containing um you know, various pieces of equipment that still had a learning curve to it. And then the most recent one that you mentioned, the set of fours, has really become a bread and butter type of uh, piece of equipment within the rope rescue family, not only for this aspect of things, but because of the many other uh, tasks it'll 
assist with or create a safety margin that we didn't have available for us before. I'm assuming there's also been a change to the belay line. The belay always needs to be there, depending on the methodology each team's using to attach to the attendant. Uh, it's varied, but one of the things that we noticed in the beginning of the transition to these newer mainline attachment point technologies was organizations were omitting the changes to the belay line, which was causing problems in the effect that the belay tail at times was a dedicated length made to come off of an attachment point, bullring, or whatever mechanism you're utilizing to bring everything together, and then down to the attendant as well as their primary attachment point. Well, if we gave them longer options with their mainline side with the Yosemite or the sets of fours and didn't do any modifications to the belay, we were in essence creating a placebo because you can only go as far as the shortest link in your system. So if the belay line hadn't been adapted, they weren't really gaining the value of the sets of fours and tools of that uh, nature. One of the ways we've adapted to the belay line side of things is going with a longer belay tail, but adding a prusik to the belay tail as a take-up device. So when the individual is in position, the excess line can be taken up and made taut. So if there was a failure of the main line side, we've minimized the fall factor. And then when they want to lengthen and go out to different lengths that their sets of fours would allow, they can utilize the prusik to bring the extra rope of the belay system through it, make the adjustment, and then once again, reset the belay to the point where the slack has been removed. All right, let's move on to edge transition training. You've written that not many places train on this enough. Why is that? Unfortunately, a lot of the previous written curriculums didn't focus on this. It was talked about, casually focused on during hands-on, but I've run into many situations where uh, it had little or no attention to detail given during the actual classroom and hands-on component. Um, when I first started doing rope rescue, we used to utilize students as victims during our training, um, and have since gravitated away from that a number of years ago for, one, if we use a student as a victim, they're losing the learning opportunity of witnessing and participating in the activities going on, and second, and more important, uh, training accidents are expected to happen as far as something not being rigged perfect, not accidents as in dropping baskets to the ground. But <laughs> during our transitions, it's a, uh, a very complex maneuver. And we had had situations where you pinched the arm of a student or left them in a uncomfortable position for a long period of time. So that being said, we transitioned into utilizing mannequins and other devices of that nature as our victims. The problem with that is we use, lose the human interface and we lose the ability to advocate for the victim because we're dealing with a mannequin that doesn't have any response capability and um, our skills really don't get honed as if we're handling somebody who's had a bad situation. Um, one of the catch lines we like to use a lot in our classes is 
we don't want the response of the first responder to be the second trauma of the day for the victim. The first one is the reason they called 911 and summoned assistance. If we get there and don't properly execute the skills we allegedly are there to do, we in many cases could create a less than positive outcome for these victims, if anything, delaying the removal of them from harm's way. So then not using actual live humans in your rescue training for rope rescue, does that lead to rougher handling of the victim in the real world? It has the potential, most definitely. Hopefully it's not. I know we've gotten to a point where we really advocate the importance of uh, functioning and learning to advocate for the victim, no matter what type of uh, product you're using for your simulation during training. Uh, but the problem is, is with this, if it's not a formal part of the curriculum and there's multiple ways of doing almost every one of the tasks we do in rope rescue. So no one curriculum is the gospel on how to do it. Uh, the best thing a student can do is take multiple training activities from different locations, do it in-house, and then add all that knowledge together and use the best pieces of the puzzle to answer the particular incident they respond to. Can you briefly go over the steps for recovering the patient in a flat edge situation? Definitely. Um, I can give one example uh, of a method we utilize. Anytime we're working an edge, we try to add leverage to it if at all possible. Uh, many times, too, the technique is dictated by the resources available being the responders. Some agencies have the luxury of coming with large numbers and others are dealing with very uh, small number of responders. So if we're doing it with three or four edge people assisting with the recovery, first and foremost, we want everybody on the edge to be tethered back to a safety point in the event that they slip, lose their footing, they don't become an additional uh victim in this particular case and then at the edge what we've gone to is adding uh, 15 or 20 foot straight sections of webbing at the four corners of the stokes basket to use as assisting handles so when we bring our uh, package with our attendant up the first thing they'll do prior to exiting the basket is hand them up to the top side operators they'll hold on to those while we remove our attended from the basket and this is the key part in training for edge transition the minute we start to transition our attendant away from the basket and we say the clock has started for our non-attended component of the victim so if we delay that process and our victim is having issues we're, we're creating a window where we're not proximal enough to maybe give them immediate care um, so this is the reason I try to advocate for practicing the edge transition so much. It's when the victim is at their greatest risk of uh, needing help but not having help available to them. So with that being said, as we get these in place, one thing we utilize is a collapsible attic ladder. We'll extend that down the face of the uh, edge, be it a, a ravine, a cliff, whatever you're working on, about one to two feet, and then... On the two ends, we will have two or four attendants holding those pieces of a webbing with our center individual, who's usually the edge person making the calls, having consistency and communication, will take the ladder and use it as a lever 
bend the ladder down flat to the surface they're standing on, which will bring it up under the basket, help elevating it, taking off a significant part of the weight of it so the two people on the end can simultaneously assist with the lift and then slide the basket back to a safe area, detach it from the system, and then hand it off to uh, EMS services, hopefully that are on scene awaiting for you to deliver the package. Sounds pretty slick. Now, would you say it's fair to say that many departments haven't worked this out quite as well yet? With most of our technical rescue aspects of the emergency response field, the volume of responses is always going to be a fraction of the hours of training. Um, If somebody takes on technical rescue with something where they anticipate going to multiple calls a day, they are either in the one unique location of the world or greatly (laughs) fooling themselves. All right, Bob Dumel, thanks for talking with us today on Code 3. Well, thanks for the invite. Have a great day. And there's more information on Rope Rescue and TRT on our website at code3podcast.com slash rope. Now it's time for your trivia question. Name the chemical that caused the Texas City explosion in 1947 that wiped out their entire fire department. I'll have the answer right after this. If you've been thinking about making a monthly pledge to support Code 3, we have an even better reason for you to do it now. We've started a new subscriber-only benefit. It's called the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more material from some of our interviews. Interesting stuff that didn't make it into the regular show. But only patrons get to hear it. So head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support and make a pledge of $10 a month or more. And you'll get immediate access to the Bull Session. Don't miss it. And here's your trivia answer. The chemical that caused the Texas City explosion in 1947 was ammonium nitrate. 27 of 28 members of their fire department were killed in the explosion. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.